The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that the citizens of Crimea, well, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. We're of the view that UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and they should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. I've come here to tell the UN, you've got to, this is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. Welcome to Article 38, the official podcast of the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. My name is Amit Chaudhary, and I'm speaking to you from the Azerbaijani Mission to the United Nations in New York. With me is Ali Ryswick, the Secretary for ILS. Thank you, Ahmad. I'm very excited to be here today and look forward to our discussion. On this episode, we will be exploring Azerbaijan's position on Karabakh, in the context of international law. I want to place an emphasis on Azerbaijan because what Azerbaijan may see as a justification through a treaty or a resolution for its position may differ from other peoples and nations. To present Azerbaijan's position today, we are going to be speaking with Mr. Tofik Musiev. Mr. Musiev graduated from the Baku State University with a degree in law and the University of Access of Ethics with a Master's in International Human Rights Law, both awarded with distinction. Mr. Musiev is currently serving as Deputy Permanent Representative of Azerbaijan to the United Nations. Prior to this position, he headed the Regional Security Department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Azerbaijan between 2014 and 2016. When he joined the ministry in 1993, he served as attaché and then third secretary in the legal department's human rights division. Between 1997 and 2001, he held various positions in the permanent mission of Azerbaijan to the UN and other international organizations at Geneva. On return to Baku, he served as deputy director of the International Law and Treaties Department and head of human rights and international humanitarian law division in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Azerbaijan between 2001 and 2004. From 2004 to 2008, he was acting director and then director of foreign policy planning and strategic studies department in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Azerbaijan. From 2008 to 2014, he served as counselor and deputy permanent representative of Azerbaijan to the UN, including as deputy head of Azerbaijan's delegation during its membership in the Security Council in 2012 to 2013. We're extremely thankful that you're, you're willing to provide us your country's position today, and we're excited to hear that. Thank you. I'm looking forward to speaking to you and your audience. The topic we are going to discuss today is of particular interest for international lawyers, uh, as it involves various branches, areas, and principles of international law, such as those uh, relating uh, to the title of territory, the use of force, humanitarian law, the law of occupation, human rights law, and the uh, interrelationship between uh, the principles of the territorial integrity of states and self-determination of peoples. And uh, I will try, uh, time permitting, uh, to briefly focus on uh, each of these issues and hope my uh, answers will be clear and uh, useful for understanding the international 
legal aspects of the problem. Well, we look forward to covering all of those uh, issues here today. In doing this podcast, we give the countries concerned the platform to present their perception or position on the conflict. But to do this, it is also important to discuss the history behind issues that are of contention. So to begin, I want you to give or give you an opportunity here to give some historical context to the region and the dispute. And it's up to you how far back in history you deem relevant. Although it is useful and uh, even uh, imperative uh, for international uh, lawyers to have comprehensive knowledge uh, of the past in, in studying and discussing specific cases, it is important to approach historical arguments with uh, maximum caution. Otherwise, the international community would be faced with scores of territorial claims based upon such arguments and there would be uh, no limit to fragmentation. However, a brief overview of some major milestones in history would be helpful in understanding the topic that we are discussing today. This is essential because despite the end of the more than uh, 30-year conflict between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan after the 44-day war in the fall of 2020, and some positive developments observed now towards the normalization of relations between the two states. The uh, version of history that has been used as a tool to uh, advance territorial claims and legal arguments still uh, dominates in Armenia. The key in this version rejecting mutual uh, acceptance is that the Armenians were the first ones uh, on the territory they claim and thus have exclusive rights to these lands. However, no matter how absolute such assertions may sound from the point of view of international law, historical facts also testify to a diametrically opposite situation. And I would like to briefly focus on, on some main points. Firstly, the Karabakh region, including its mountainous part, which is often erroneously and confusingly referred to in conjunction with the Russian word Nagorny or Nagorno, has historically been inhabited and ruled by Azerbaijanis and their ancestors and has been part of all entities and states established by them on the territory of Azerbaijan. Secondly, uh, the mass settlement of Armenians in the South Caucasus originated in, in the first half of the 19th, uh, 19th century after the, the signing of the Gulistan and Turkmenchai treaties between Russia and Iran on uh, 12 October 1813 and uh, 10th February 1828 respectively. The First World War also contributed to the increase in the number of Armenians in the South Caucasus. In total, over one million Armenians moved to the region between 1821 and 1911, and additionally 350,000 between 1914 and 1916. Such a large influx of population and the resulting demographic changes laid the basis for long-term instability, tensions and conflicts in the region. Thus, between 1905 and 1907, the Armenians carried out a series of large-scale massacres against the Azerbaijanis, 
The uh, 31st of uh, March is uh, commemorated uh, every year in my country as the day of genocide of Azerbaijanis in memory of those thousands of civilians killed as a result of Armenian offensives in 1918. The last point on history that I want to make is that the Karabakh region, including its mountainous part, mountainous area, was part of the first independent republic of Azerbaijan in 1918 and 1920. In 1919, the Allied powers recognized the administration and jurisdiction of Azerbaijan over the Karabakh region. And the following year, Azerbaijan was recognized de facto at the Paris Peace Conference. However, in 1920, Soviet rule was established in Azerbaijan and throughout the South Caucasus. So after this, the Soviets are in control over the territory. So with this, was the question of the status of Karabakh raised after the establishment of Soviet rule, and how was it resolved? The widely uh, replicated assertion that mountainous uh, Karabakh was annexed uh, to Azerbaijan by Stalin uh, after the establishment of uh, Soviet rule in the region is uh, totally groundless. Uh, first, as I, as I mentioned, just mentioned, the region was part of Azerbaijan before that. Secondly, in connection with Armenia's territorial claims, on the 5th of July 1921, the Caucasian Bureau of the Russian Bolshevik Party, a collegial body with uh, several Armenians as its members, among others, after careful consideration, decided to retain mountainous Karabakh within Azerbaijan, definitely not to annex or transfer or subject it to Azerbaijan, as Armenia asserts. The text uh, of this document is uh, easily accessible and uh, can be consulted to uh, dispel any doubts. Furthermore, according to the same decision, uh, mountainous Karabakh was to be uh, given the status of autonomous province within Azerbaijan. This was formalized two years later with an act adopted by Azerbaijan on the 7th of July 1923. Thirdly, these decisions would be repeatedly confirmed by the Soviet legislation and recognized by Armenia over the years. Armenia definitely cannot complain and be dissatisfied because at the same time the much larger Azerbaijani population, more than half a million, was refused the same status of autonomy in Armenia. Moreover, not only the city of Erevan, the capital of Armenia now, was earlier conceded to Armenia by Azerbaijan in, in an effort to secure peace in the region, but also the western uh, part of the Zangezur region with the dominating uh, Azerbaijani population was annexed uh, to Armenia in 1920. As a result, the uh, Nakhchivan region of Azerbaijan was cut off from and now has no land connection with the main part of the country. In subsequent years, during the Soviet period, most Azerbaijanis were, were driven from uh, their homeland in Armenia and uh, in the late 1980s, the remaining more than uh, 200,000 Azerbaijanis uh, were expelled and not allowed to return. Many were killed during forcible deportation, and, and since then uh, the Azerbaijani historical and cultural heritage has been 
consistently uh, eradicate, eradicated uh, and all Azerbaijani localities have been uh, renamed uh, throughout Armenia. Now let's move closer to the dissolution of the Soviet Union where you had perestroika reforms and openness with Glasnost but also resumption of secessionist claims to the territory we are discussing today. Had the law of the USSR on procedures for resolving questions related to the secession of Union Republics from the USSR of April 3rd, 1990, any legal consequences? In the late 1980s, uh, taking advantage uh, of the uncertainty caused by the so-called perestroika and, and glasnost, the group of Armenian ethno-nationalists uh, instituted the process of unilateral secession of mountainous Karabakh from Azerbaijan and its uh, annexation to Armenia. The actions that followed fueled ethnic tensions and unrest across Armenia and Azerbaijan, causing uh, first casualties and uh, displacements. The secessionist claims were laid under the pretext of alleged care of Armenians living in mountainous Karabakh. However, these claims definitely were part of the long uh, nurtured uh, plan of annexing and uh, ethnically cl uh, cleansing the Azerbaijani lands. Indeed, the allegations of uh, discrimination of Armenians on ethnic grounds uh, in Azerbaijan do not stand up to scrutiny. In fact, the Armenians enjoyed a wide range of rights and, and privileges in uh, Azerbaijan. In mountainous uh, Karabakh alone, uh, they were heads of all state organs. The Armenian language was freely used in public life and in the work of public uh, local authorities. And in terms of economic development, the region was second behind only uh, the capital city of Baku. Besides Karabakh, the Armenians were widely represented uh, in, in public, political, economic, social and cultural spheres throughout Azerbaijan, holding senior uh, positions in political, legislative, executive and uh, law enforcement organs. As to the legal position, the uh, applicable um, constitutional law at that time was very clear. According to the constitution uh, of the Soviet Union, the territory of a Union Republic could not be altered without its consent, while the borders between the Union Republics could be changed by mutual agreement of the Republics concerned. Moreover, under the Constitution, only Union Republics, not their autonomous entities or ethnic minorities, had the right to freely secede from the Soviet Union. Consequently, the claims and actions as to the detachment uh, of uh, mountainous Karabakh from Azerbaijan without its consent were unconstitutional. In addition to the decisions taken by Azerbaijan itself, the claims, these claims and actions were invalidated also by the bodies of the USSR with the uh, primary uh, relevant authority. The autonomy in mountainous Karabakh remained in, an, in existence until the 26th November 1991, when Azerbaijan, considering imminent threats to its sovereignty, territorial integrity, and to the rights, freedoms, and, and safety of its uh, citizens, abolished uh, this entity. 
It was established by Azerbaijan in 1923 and abolished by Azerbaijan 68 years later. As to the Soviet law of uh, the 3rd April uh, 1990 that, that you mentioned uh, on the procedures uh, for resolving questions related uh, to the secession of Union Republics from the USSR, its formal purpose was to, was to establish uh, specific procedures to be followed by Union Republics in the event of their secession from the USSR. However, the true intention behind that act, hastily adopted shortly before the Soviet Union uh, ceased to exist, was to prevent the dissolution of the USSR by creating insurmountable barriers to the path of secession of Union Republics. According to the said law, the secession uh, of a Union Republic uh, from the USSR could be regard, uh, regarded uh, valid uh, only after the fulfillment of a complicated and uh, multi-stage uh, procedures. And finally, the approval uh, by the Congress of the USSR People's Deputies. However, during the short period after its adoption uh, and until the formal dissolution of the USSR, this law uh, was not involved and had no legal effects whatsoever. In, in our uh, preliminary meetings that we had, we briefly discussed some important legal issues in the creation of newly independent states after the fall of the Soviet Union. And one thing stood out to me, and I hope I don't uh, mispronounce this, but I, I think this term is uh, important for international law students, UT Posidaitis Juris, which is a principle of customary international law that aims to preserve the boundaries of colonies from emerging, emerging as states. So essentially the boundaries of a colony, political subdivision, federal or other distinct administrative unit are supposed to become the respected international boundary once a state is independent and independence is achieved essentially. So I, I was hoping you could uh, expand on this and other relevant issues of newly independent states. Uh, this is an important question as it relates to the legitimate inheritance uh, of pre-existing uh, pre uh, frontiers by the former Union Republics and their recognition as uh, international after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in December 1991. The factual basis for the operation of the legal principle of Uti Positatis here uh, in, this, in this situation, in this case, is beyond dispute. As is known, this principle functions in the content, uh, context of the transmission of sovereignty and the creation of a new independent state. Once the new state has become independent, the norm of territorial integrity takes over to provide protection for the territorial framework of that state. Consequently, what matters from the point of view of international law is the frontier which existed at the moment of independence on the basis of the constitutional law of the former or predecessor state. In this sense, the position as far as Azerbaijan is clear. As I noted earlier, on the eve of the independence of Azerbaijan, the unlawfulness within the Soviet legal system of any attempts aimed at either the unification of 
mountainous Karabakh with Armenia or its secession from Azerbaijan was confirmed at the highest constitutional level. Evidently, Azerbaijan restored its independence in 1991 and, uh, and was recognized as such in accordance with international law with uh, the territory and boundaries that it had possessed within the Soviet Union. This means that mountainous Karabakh was internationally accepted as falling within the sovereign territory of Azerbaijan. At the international level, the application of the principle of UT Positatis to the state of the former USSR was acknowledged in the European guidelines uh, on the recognition of new states in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, adopted by the European community and its uh, member states on the 16th December 1991, as well as in three other documents to which both Armenia and Azerbaijan are parties, uh, namely the agreement establishing the Commonwealth of Independent States uh, of 8th December 1991, the declaration of Almata of 21st December 1991, and the 1993 Charter of the Commonwealth of Independent States. These documents recognized all existing frontiers, committed states to respect their inviolability, and stated that these frontiers can only be changed by uh, peaceful means and by common agreement. With that, let's look at the conflict that broke out in 1987 and the subsequent Security Council resolutions relevant to the war in Karabakh and occupied territories. So if you could please explain the nature and qualification of the conflict under international law and the relevant Security Council resolutions beginning in 1993. In my previous answers, uh, I covered the period before the emergence of, of Armenia and Azerbaijan as sovereign states, namely the period uh, between 1987 and 1991. The situation following their independence uh, is also clear. Any attempt to, by Armenia to encourage, procure or sustain the secession of mountainous Karabakh was unlawful international law as amounting to a violation of the principle of respect for the territorial integrity of states. At the end of 1991 and the beginning of 1992, Armenia unleashed full-scale war against Azerbaijan. The active military phase continued until the establishment of the ceasefire in May 1994. And by that time, a significant part of the territory of Azerbaijan, consisting of mountainous Karabakh, the seven surrounding districts, and some exclaves, were occupied. Serious violations of international humanitarian law were committed in the course of the conflict and occupation, resulting in the death of tens of thousands of civilians and the ethnic cleansing of the occupied territories of more than 700,000 Azerbaijanis. Almost all captured cities, towns and, and villages were raised to the ground. This month marks, marks the 30th anniversary of the largest massacre committed 
in the town of uh, Hojali Mountains, Karabakh, where in uh, February 1992, hundreds of Azerbaijani civilians were killed, wounded, uh, taken hostage, or uh, went missing. This uh, tragedy, which independent experts recognized as the worst single atrocity in, uh, of the Ar Armenian-Azerbaijani war, was condemned internationally as a crimes, uh, crime against humanity or an act of genocide. In its uh, resolutions 822, 853, 874 and 884 adopted in 1993, the United Nations Security Council explicitly condemned the use of force against Azerbaijan and uh, the occupation of its territories and expressly reaffirmed respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Azerbaijan, the inviolability of international borders, and the inadmissibility of the use of force for the acquisition of territory. In those resolutions, the Security Council also reconfirmed that the region of mountainous Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan and demanded the immediate, complete, and unconditional withdrawal of occupying Armenian forces from all the occupied territories. In sum, the resolutions provided authoritative clarif clarification as to the committed acts, the violated obligations, and the uh, duties to put an end to the illegal situation thus created. They acknowledged that acts of military force were committed against Azerbaijan, that the territories of Azerbaijan were occupied, and that those acts and their military outcomes constituted violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Azerbaijan in contravention of the United Nations Charter and interna uh, international law. The numerous documents adopted by other international organizations are framed uh, along the same lines. Moreover, the item entitled the situation in the occupied territories of Azerbaijan was included in the agenda of the regular sessions of the United Nations General Assembly. Under this item, uh, two resolutions were adopted, three internationally mandated fact-finding and field assessment missions were conducted in the occupied territories, and numerous reports and communications circulated. Among the decisions, the leading judgment of the European Court of Human Rights in the case of Chiragov and others versus Armenia adopted on the 16th of June 2015 is undoubtedly of particular relevance in regard to the qualification of the conflict under international law. In that judgment, the court established that Armenia exercised effective control over the region of mountainous Karabakh and other occupied territories of Azerbaijan, and thus was responsible for violations of international law in those territories. This finding was important for a number of reasons, including given Armenia's denial over the years of the war of not only uh, its role as an aggressor, but even as a party to the conflict. Um, okay, so now from the Armenian side, there is a big emphasis placed on the right of self-determination. 
could you provide your perspective on the interrelationship between the principles of territorial integrity and self-determination in international law in the context of the claims made and maintained in regard to the former Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast? Indeed, uh, during the conflict, Armenia has placed emphasis on the right to self-determination with the only purpose to advance its territorial claims and cover up its unlawful actions. Armenia's arguments were and are fundamentally flawed. I'm firmly convinced that there exists no conflict of norms in international law. Uh, most important in addressing uh, the content of norms is their precise scope and application. Both the textual analysis of the existing provisions on self-determination and the negotiation process of international instruments containing such provisions make it abundantly clear who are the beneficiaries of the right to self-determination. Firstly, such beneficiaries are the peoples of the colonially defined territorial units, that is, non-self-governing territories that, uh, uh, as it is understood under international law. Secondly, self-determination also has an, uh, an application in cases of foreign occupation. As such, it acts to sustain the integrity of existing states, not to dismember them. Need needless to say, uh, neither in mountainous Karabakh nor in any other parts, part of the world do Armenians fall within any of these categories of peoples. On the contrary, it is in effect the right to self-determination of the people of Azerbaijan was violated due to aggression and 30 years of occupation. Additionally, the right to self-determination is also recognized as applying to peoples or permanent population of independent states and provides for their participation in the conduct of public affairs and governance within the territorial framework of such states. Outside of the special context of decolonization, international law is unambiguous in not providing for a right of unilateral secession from independent states, including within the meaning of the principle of self-determination. Suffice it to look uh, in this sense at the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, uh, to which the OSC MIS group specifically referred in the context uh, of the conflict settlement process between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Thus, this document, which contains the Decalogue of Principles, obliges the participating states to respect the equal rights of peoples and their right to self-determination, acting at all times in conformity with the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations and with the relevant norms of international law, including those relating to territorial integrity of states. This understanding was basically reflected in the statement on principles made by the OEC chairman in office at the Lisbon summit of the organization in 1996. Armenia was the only one out of 54 participating states not to support these principles, which should have been the basis for the settlement of the conflict.
This case is indicative of the fact that Armenia is alone in its understanding of self-determination. Furthermore, self-determination claims are unsustainable when they are accompanied by a violation of international law. In particular, its peremptory norms use cogens, such as those prohibiting the threat or use of force against the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. And this position was uh, confirmed by the International Court of Justice in its Kosovo advisory opinion. It follows from this that the secession, secessionist claims and actions in relation to Karabakh were unlawful and legally ineffective. It couldn't be otherwise, as the purported self-determination unit under various fabricated titles was set up and over the next almost 30 years maintained, uh, maintained by Armenia within the occupied territories of Azerbaijan by the unlawful use of force in violation of the fundamental norm of respect for the territorial integrity of states and at the cost of numerous human lives and total ethnic cleansing. Moreover, that entity was established purely along ethnic lines making it comparable with such precedents as Manchukuo, Transke, and other South African Bantustans. The fact that no state in the international community has recognized this entity as independent speaks for itself. So from us researching the history of the conflict and the dispute, we, we noticed that since 1994, Although efforts like the 1997 Minsk Group step-by-step -step proposal and later the Madrid Principles had been made to resolve the situation, the issue for you being resolving this situation in the occupied territories of Azerbaijan. But in the eyes of the international community, it seemed that the conflict was neglected. Until the events of 2020 and beyond, yeah, so from the, up, up until those uh, time period, at least this is the perception we got. So if you could just explain how the situation evolved after the ceasefire and during the peace process under the auspices of the OSCE during this time period after the war up until relatively recent uh, events of 2020. As I noted before, the ceasefire was established in May 1994. Two years earlier, the mediation format of the Minsk conference negotiations towards a peaceful settlement was agreed within the CSCE and later endorsed in the relevant resolutions of the United Nations Security Council. In 1995, the mandate for the co-chairman of the Minsk process was agreed, and in 1997, the office of the triple co-chairmanship of the Minsk group was established. The relevant OEC documents and decisions laid down the step-by-step -step approach to the settlement of the conflict and several proposals were put forward and discussed within the peace process during this period. A number of essential steps should have been taken starting with the elimination of the major consequences of the conflict which would ensure in the first place the immediate complete and unconditional withdrawal of Armenian armed forces from the occupied territories of Azerbaijan to be followed by the return of the forcibly displaced population to these territories, the opening of 
all communications in the region, and then the elaboration and definition of self-rule for the residents of mountainous Karabakh within Azerbaijan. However, the mediation efforts yielded no results and failed to facilitate the negotiated settlement. Uh, the reason is simple. Armenia's main uh, objective was to consolidate and cement its territorial gains and colonize the captured territories under the cover of the peace process and the ceasefire. Thus, for example, while the withdrawal of Armenian troops from uh, the occupied territories and the return of internally displaced Azerbaijanis to their homes were the key objectives and prerequisites of the peaceful solution. The organized settlement of these territories by ethnic Armenians from Armenia and elsewhere uh, continued and expanded until uh, their liberation in the fall of 2020. Additionally, Armenia gradually toughened rhetoric at the highest level, threatening to unleash new war for new territories and hit major cities and civilian infrastructure in Azerbaijan with uh, ballistic missiles and declaring Karabakh as part of Armenia, thus making their uh, negotiations essentially useless. Against that background, the lack of adequate reaction and attention from international institutions and attempts to uh, somehow indulge their aggressor could in no way convince it to respect international law. Moreover, despite the ceasefire, uh, Armenia, Armenian forces uh, repeatedly shelled Azerbaijan settlements along the so-called line of contact, resulting in dozens of civilians killed and wounded. From 2015, there was a re-escalation re in and around the occupied territories and on the border between uh, two states. In April 2016 and in July 2020, Armenia provoked large-scale hostilities, which caused uh, numerous casualties among uh, Azerbaijani civilians and servicemen and extensive material damage. With that, we approached the Second Karabakh War. Bringing us to the Second War, there are several questions that we hope you can provide us answers to. First, we would like to know if you could please explain the conflict from your perspective and also explain the signing of the trilateral agreement on November 9th and 12th, 20, November 2020. Yet uh, in 2008, in a comprehensive uh, legal report that Azerbaijan circulated uh, in the United Nations, it was stated in particular that should Armenia put a prompt end to the occupation, while the ceasefire lasts and before uh, Azerbaijan opts to reinvoke its right of self-defense, there would be no ground for any actual uh, resumption of hostilities and for the use of force by Azerbaijan. Armenia ignored this clear message which, which was made, as I said, in 2008. On the 27th of September 2020, the armed forces of Azerbaijan along the front line and the adjacent populated areas were, were again subjected to intensified 
in the, in the course of hostilities that lasted uh, 44 days, direct and indiscriminate missile and artillery attacks by Armenian forces that struck Azerbaijani cities and districts, including with the use of uh, prohibited uh, cluster munitions, killed and wounded hundreds of civilians and destroyed numerous civilian objects. Azerbaijan used counterforce to restore its territorial integrity and protect its people, acting exclusively on its sovereign soil in full conformity with the Charter of the United Nations and international law. As a result, the armed forces of Azerbaijan liberated more than 300 cities, towns and villages from occupation. The liberation of the city of Shusha paved uh, the way for the conclusion of the armed conflict and the signing by Armenia of a capitulation act. The statement of the president of Azerbaijan, the prime minister of Armenia and the president of the Russian Federation signed on the ninth, night of, of 10 to 10th, 9 to 10th uh, November 2020 provided for co a complete ceasefire and termination of all hostilities. The withdrawal of the remaining Armenian troops from the territory of uh, Azerbaijan. The temporary deployment of the Russian peace peacekeeping contingent within certain area. The return of internally displaced persons and refugees. The exchange of prisoners of war, hostages and other detained persons. And the unblocking of all economic and transport communications in the region. Thank you. Finally, to end with, we'd like to understand where the situation is and is headed going into the future. What are some of the recent relevant events and the processes taking place in regard to post-conflict priorities and the peace agenda? Uh, the three decades old armed conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan has been resolved. Uh, this was long uh, overdue development demanded by the Charter of the United Nations, international law and justice. However, not all terms of the trilateral uh, statement were complied with and faithfully implemented by Armenia. Thus, after the signing of the statement, Armenia deployed the sabotage group in the territory of Azerbaijan and attacked Azerbaijani military and civilians. In the subsequent period, Armenia resorted to various provocations uh, on the border between the two, uh, two states and within the area where the Russian peacekeeping contingent is temporarily deployed. Further, Armenia refuses to withdraw the remnants of its armed forces from that area to provide the complete set of maps on the location of minefields in the liberated territories and to shed light on the fate of almost almost 4,000 Azerbaijanis who went missing during the war in, in the 1990s. It also creates obstacles to the opening of transport and other communications, uh, in particular the uh, Zangizur corridor between the western regions of Azerbaijan and its Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic through the territory of Armenia, which was specifically stipulated in the uh, November 2020 trilateral statement. Furthermore, Armenia must redress the harm caused to Azerbaijan and its people for uh, aggression and occupation. Appropriate legal steps are being taken in this direction, including 
within the International Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights under the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and the European Convention on Human Rights, respectively. At the same time, the post-conflict realities definitely offer an opportunity and real prospects for building peace, consolidating stability, restoring peaceful coexistence, advancing the reconciliation agenda, and investing in economic development and cooperation. Therefore, immediately after the end of the conflict, Azerbaijan expressed its readiness to the normalization of interstate relations with Armenia based on mutual recognition and respect for each other's sovereignty and territorial integrity within uh, their internationally recognized uh, borders, including through the signing uh, of a peace treaty based on these principles. Armenia's response to this initiative took some time. Finally, at the meeting between the President of Azerbaijan and the Prime Minister of Armenia uh, last month, on the 6th of April in Brussels, both leaders expressed their desire to move rapidly to a peace treaty based on the five principles presented by Azerbaijan and agreed to instruct the ministers of foreign affairs to work on the preparation of this document. They also agreed to convene a joint border commission on the delimitation and demarcation of the state border between the countries. We support direct contacts and discussions with Armenia to advance normalization agenda. Domestically, Azerbaijan prioritized the rehabilitation and reconstruction of the liberated territories and their reintegration into the country's economy to ensure the safe return of the displaced population and high standard of living. Uh, to this end, by uh, his decree uh, of the 7th of July 2021, the president of Azerbaijan established the Karabakh and East Zangizur economic regions. And uh, impressive large-scale works uh, are now underway. The sacred city of uh, Shusha, uh, which, as I noted, was the, the last uh, city liberated before the termination of hostilities, evokes special feeling for us. It was founded in 1752 by Panah Ali Khan Javanshir, uh, the Azerbaijani ruler of the Karabakh Khanate. Last May, the city was declared to be uh, the cultural capital of Azerbaijan, and life is now returning to uh, Shusha. And in a short uh, period of time, uh, a number of significant uh, historical and cultural objects have been restored, uh, infrastructure uh, projects have been uh, implemented, and several international uh, conferences and cultural events have been organized in the city. And this year, Azerbaijan celebrates the 270th anniversary of Shusha. And on the occasion of this remarkable page in Azerbaijan's history, the president of Azerbaijan declared 2022 as the year of Shusha. Within its uh, domestic agenda, 
Azerbaijan is also determined to reintegrate the Armenian residents of the country, entitled as its citizens to the full enjoyment of human rights on an equal and non-discriminatory basis in accordance with the constitution and legislation of Azerbaijan. And I should say that we consider diverse, diversity as richness and will continue our efforts towards maintaining civic cohesion and promoting inclusivity. Well, uh, what you've provided us with today is going to be helpful for our overall project. It's going to be helpful to students of international law. So I just want to thank you so much for providing that position today. Yes, and thank you for taking time out of your day to meet with us as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much and uh, good luck uh, with your project, uh, and uh, which I hope uh, will be uh, successful and contribute to promoting international law and uh, better understanding of the root causes of contention in interstate relations and uh, their uh, legal uh, ramifications. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. My name is Amit Chaudhary, and I'm the president of the International Law Society. This will be my last podcast as the ILS president, and the last one for our project for understanding territorial disputes in the context of international law. I'd like to thank all the members of the International Law Society and the faculty at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, without whom this series of podcasts would not have been possible. Do keep in touch for information regarding upcoming products and projects this fall by following us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.